The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. If you'll find Exodus chapter 20 in your Bibles, we've made it. While you're finding that, let me just give a brief recap of kind of where we're at. In the years prior to the Israelites arriving at Mount Sinai, their lives were miserable and in danger. Because not only were they slaves, but they were slaves to a king who ordered their babies to be drowned in the Nile River. God heard their cries for help, and he sent Moses to deliver them. When Pharaoh refused to let the people go, God unleashed the ten plagues, and they lasted about nine months. And God used these ten disasters to judge Pharaoh, to judge the Egyptians, to judge their false gods, while also proving his power and ultimately redeeming the Israelites out of slavery. God's works were so powerful that they convinced others who were not Jews to leave Egypt with the Jews. We were told that a mixed multitude left Egypt in order to serve Yahweh. For three months after they left Egypt, God protected them. He was patient with them. He provided for them. He led them ultimately to the wilderness of Sinai. And now they're encamped near the base of the mountain. They would stay for about 10 months there. When they arrived at Sinai, God promised that if they would covenant with him and obey him, that they would be his unique treasure, a kingdom of priests. They would be a holy nation. And the people agreed. And so God would descend in three days upon the mountain to offer them the terms of the covenant. And so the next two days, the people spent in preparation, consecrating themselves because being in God's holy presence is not something to take lightly. And so the people washed their clothes. They abstained from certain activities. And they focused on God because everyone needed to be ready. And on the third day, Yahweh came down to Mount Sinai. He came down in fire. The mountain trembled as it was engulfed with a dark cloud. Smoke rose to the heavens. There were thunders. There were lightnings. There was a trumpet blast that grew louder and louder. And the people were afraid. And Moses said, it's time to go closer. And so he led the people to the base of the mountain. And God spoke to them. When we read Exodus 20, this was for everyone. Moses is not the only one who heard these words. Let's read Exodus 20, the first 21 verses, and hear what God spoke to the people. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, uh, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We'll stop reading there. People don't like to be told what to do. I know that's not breaking news. Whenever we hear a rule or a law, sometimes we push back and sometimes we kind of ask two types of questions. The first has to do with authority. Who are you to tell me what to do? What gives you the right? Why do I have to listen to what you say? And the second question has to do with the validity of the rule. Why is this even a rule? Who cares? What's the reason for it? Why does it matter if I do this or don't do this? Just this past week, I'm going to tell on myself, just this past week, I learned that Avery School will not allow parents to eat lunch with their children on Fridays this year. And I thought, why? I thought parent involvement was something schools loved. Why would they not let parents in on Fridays? Well, it turns out the school set aside Fridays as a special day for the children to have other privileges they don't have during the week. Parents can come Monday through Thursday. They weren't trying to keep parents away from their kids. But my initial reaction just shows how humans are. Why, why is that a rule? There was a reason for it. There was a good, valid reason. But we tend to question either the authority behind a rule or the validity of the rule, and maybe both sometimes. We just read what we call the Ten Commandments. And we need to understand that the commandments of God are both authoritative and valid. He has every right to issue these laws or these commands 
And every one of them has a good purpose behind it. And we're going to see that in the first two verses this morning. We're going to see his authority and we're going to see the validity behind these. And we're also going to note just some general observations about the the whole list of the commandments. And I want to kind of start there with just some overall thoughts. We label this as the Ten Commandments, and there's nothing wrong with that. Scripture technically calls them the Ten Words. Not that there were only ten words in this, but the Ten Words. But they are commands or prohibitions that God gave the Israelites. And I want you to kind of notice, you can look back kind of through the the verses, the first four commands are what we might call religiously oriented. The first four commands revolve around you and your relationship with God. Will you serve him only? Will you do so without the aid of idols? Will you respect his day? Will you respect his name? There's nothing in the first four commands about other people. Nothing. The most important thing in your life is your relationship, your fellowship, and your attitude towards God. Now, I hope we understand that even though other people are not mentioned in these first four commands, if you obey these first four commands, it will positively affect your relationship with other people. But strictly speaking, these first four are about you and God. A pastor friend of mine said this one time, and I've, I've stolen it quite a bit. If you put God first, nobody comes second. The final six commands are socially oriented. They are about you and other people and they involve how you treat them and your relationships with them. Will you respect the life of someone else? Will you respect that person's reputation, whether that's honoring a parent or not lying about someone? Will you respect their property? So all of these commands have to do with God and other people. Ultimately, isn't that what God's concerned about? How do you treat him and how do you treat others? That's really that simple. It's a really simple and easy breakdown or or organization of the commandments. And I want you to turn to Matthew 22 and see that in in sort of breaking this up, we're we're not in, in bad ground because Jesus did that. Matthew 22. One time someone came up to Jesus and asked him what the greatest commandment was. What's the most important one? And we'll see that Jesus organized the law just like we just did. Look at Matthew 22. Let's look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now I know when we read uh, Exodus 20, we didn't read these exact statements that Jesus quoted from because he's quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But those statements that Jesus made are exactly how the entire law should be interpreted. Love God, love others. And we see that even in that breakdown I just gave you. 
it's no surprise that as we keep reading the New Testament that the Apostle Paul agreed with Jesus and the, the preeminence of love. In Romans, Paul wrote, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How so? Well, if you love someone, you won't murder them. If you love someone, you won't steal from them. If you love someone, you won't lie about them. It's pretty simple. So the Ten Commandments are about love. About loving God and loving others. And it's good to see that division because we know that the vertical affects the horizontal. Your relationship with God is going to affect your relationship with other people. Although it's good to see that division, we don't need to make it a hard split, if I could say it that way. It doesn't need to be a hard division because this isn't a buffet. You can't say, I'm going to love God. Those first four commands, I've, I've got it, but other people are so hard to deal with, I'm going to forget those six. Can't do that. It's not a buffet. All of the commands fall under the same umbrella of love. So this is not a checklist of random, disconnected, isolated commands that we can pick and choose which ones we want to uh, follow or which ones are important. This is a list of unity. There's cooperation and cohesion in these commands. One reason, again, is because love fulfills it all. But there's another reason that this is a unified list. And I want you to look at James chapter 2 now. See, I told you guys to mark those scriptures, and I didn't do it myself. So do what I say, not what I do, right? James chapter 2, here's the other reason why the law is, is a unified thing. It's because it was given by one person. There's only one lawgiver. Look at James 2, 8 through 11. James wrote, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Notice 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We'll stop reading there. Can you imagine someone standing in a courtroom and telling the judge after they robbed a bank, but I didn't murder anybody. No, but you're still going to prison. You're a lawbreaker. And when we think about the Ten Commandments, the unity is seen in that they are all under the umbrella of love and they are all under the umbrella that God gave them. There's one lawgiver. And that was God. And this one lawgiver was so personally involved in this that he descended upon the mountain to give it. He didn't have to do it that way. God could have given Moses a dream or a vision, but this was personal. He descended, and in Exodus 31, 18, we're even told that the two tablets of stone were etched by the finger of God. So there's some unity here. 
Now, there are different ideas about how God etched the tablets, about how they were broken down, I guess we might say, or how they were laid out. Some people believe four, the first four commands were on one tablet and the second six commands were on the second tablet because of that breakdown we talked about. Some people assume it was just an easy five and five breakdown. But as studying this, there's another fascinating idea, and that's that each tablet contained all 10 laws. And the idea there is that obviously then they're basically the same. And the reason for this thought is that it was a cultural practice during that time when treaties and covenants were made that you had two copies. We do that today. If you've ever bought something expensive, you had to sit down in an office and sign your life away and sign a bunch of paperwork. What did the loan officer tell you? Now, these are the same. One is your copy and one is ours because both parties need to know what this agreement is all about. And that may have been the case here. I can't say definitively, but it makes a lot of sense in the culture and the practice of that time for both parties to have a copy of the agreement. And in fact, just the layout of how God starts what we call the Ten Commandments, it fits with the way uh, their typical practices were. So during that time, when you had a covenant that was agreed upon between what we would call a, a suzerain king and the people, and that's what we have here. We have God the king making a covenant with the people. There was a certain organization to this. And it started with what we might call a preamble or an introduction. Well, look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God. There's the introduction. Here's who's talking. Here's who's speaking. Here's who I am. There's your preamble. And then after that, they would normally give some type of brief history about who the king was or what he had done for the people. Well, keep reading. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's your historical introduction to the, to the treaty and the covenant. And then finally, during that time, after the introduction, after the history, guess what came next? The stipulations and the requirements. And we won't read all the commandments again, but that's exactly the layout we find in the Ten Commandments. And so all of that, and there's some other significant cultural things about making covenants that happen in this larger story that we won't get into. My point is just that it would fit and it would make sense for both tablets to contain all Ten Commandments on them, one serving as God's copy, one serving as the people's copy. Do you remember where both of these copies are going to be placed? Both of them are going in the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. That's powerful. And this, this was a covenant. It's more than just rules. This is binding between two parties. So they've already agreed to it. God is now descended and is giving them the terms. And let's just look at verse 1 uh, briefly because I think sometimes we may tend to skip over verse 1 and say, let's hurry up and get to the commands. But the commands don't mean anything if they weren't spoken by someone who has authority. So verse 1 tells us that. And God spoke all these words. God spoke. The one who possesses all authority. He spoke. If the Ten Commandments were laws given by a mere man, 
or even a supreme being that we don't really respect. Someone who has no authority, what would we say? Who cares? Who are you? Why do I have to believe what you say or why do I have to follow your rules? You don't have authority over me. Do you remember Pharaoh's reaction when Moses initially went into the palace and said, Yahweh says to let my people go? Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? He had no respect for the authority of God. A lot of people still like that today. But God is the divine creator and judge of this universe. And he has all authority. Not only does he have the authority to command our lives, but I want you to consider that we need to be thankful that he has that authority and thankful that he did command our lives. Otherwise, morality would be subjective. Right and wrong would just be a matter of opinion. Thankfully, it's not. God gave humanity an objective standard of morality. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. This is not just a Bryant, Arkansas thing. It wasn't just a Mount Sinai thing. It's timeless and it's cross-cultural. Y'all have heard of Hammurabi before and his famous laws. In ancient Babylon, the code of Hammurabi had a law against stealing. Did you know that if you steal something in Bryant, Arkansas, it's also wrong? You can get in trouble today too, just like you could back in ancient Babylon. Have we not advanced beyond those ancient laws? Why is stealing against the law here, just like it was in ancient Babylon? Because it's wrong. It's that simple. But why? And how do we know this? And why, we've all, why have we all agreed about it? Well, partially because of the Ten Commandments. And along with that, what I read earlier in the service in Romans chapter 2, God has also implanted a sense of morality within our hearts. That's what Paul was talking about when he mentioned that the Gentiles who weren't at Mount Sinai, they weren't part of the Jewish nation. They still know it's wrong to murder. None of y'all were at Mount Sinai and all of you know that it's wrong to lie. Because God created us with that innate sense of, of conscience that just moral compass, some people call it. Some people call it the moral law. If God did not do that, and if he didn't have the authority to do that, then morality would be subjective, which just means if you feel like it's right, just do it, and you can't tell me that I'm wrong. If I want to go rob a bank, I can go rob a bank, and you cannot condemn me for it. Say, Brother Matt, nobody thinks like that. That's silly. There are some people, I'm going to use this word carefully, who claim to believe that. They claim that morality is relative and that you can do whatever you feel is right. There's a simple way to expose that error. And I'm not, um, I'm not recommending it because it's not very Christian. But if you want to expose their error, just go punch them in the face. Just walk up and punch them or vandalize their car or steal their money and notice what they do. 
Notice how they're going to react. They're going to get mad, aren't they? If you steal their money, they're going to file a police report. And they're going to say, that's wrong. Whoa. Who are you to tell me I'm wrong if morality is, if there is no standard? Think about it this way. Reactions prove the moral law more so than our actions. Because our actions, we don't always keep the moral law. We don't always keep these commandments. But when someone does something to us, we get mad. They can't steal from me. Because we know it's wrong. So our reactions prove that we accept this standard and that we know it. C.S. Lewis pointed out a great point about the moral law and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, we, we only make excuses for things that we know deep down are wrong. We, nobody ever offers apology, uh, apologies for, for good behavior. There has never been a child in the history of, of the world that came up to his mom and said, Mother, I'm so sorry I cleaned my room just like you asked. No employee has ever marched into the, the boss's office and said, I... I just really need to apologize for working so hard today. I'm just so thankful for this job, and I'm a loyal worker. I'm sorry. We don't do that. We don't, we don't apologize and make excuses for good behavior. We do that for bad behavior, which means deep down we know, we know what's right. And that accepted standard comes from God, who has authority to speak and tell us what he wants us to do. God's authority is all over the Ten Commandments. God's authority is all over the world. So these are authoritative. Now with that question answered, what's the next question we, we ask? Well, are they valid? Why should I keep these? What's the purpose of these? And, you know, maybe there's no good reason here. Maybe God just wanted to tie us down and keep us from having fun. These are restrictive well, verse 2 helps us with that. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Don't forget that this big authoritative God is not distant from you. He personally cares for you and loves you and with the Israelites. Notice how personal this gets for them. See, in verse 2, we see the word Lord in all capital letters, which is not the generic word for Lord or Master or Sir. But when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it's the name of God. It's Yahweh. It's the way he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. You remember the story. It essentially means I am, and it points to God's self-existence. So in verse 2, Yahweh the I am, the self-existing God, he says, is your God. There's a, there's a connection there. And then he gave them that great history lesson about what he did for them. Remember that I delivered you from slavery. 
One author made a great point that in the ancient Semitic culture, that if someone voluntarily rescued someone else and offered some sort of just great help to someone else, that the other person would be basically indebted forever to the one who helped them. And that, that wasn't a bad thing. That was a good thing in their culture. It's, they, they weren't going to take that lightly. One author says one could not simply ignore significant good done on one's behalf by another. The doing of that good created an inescapable relationship of loyalty to one's benefactor, a sort of permanent gratitude. The Jews, as they're about to hear these commands, should be reminded already of what God did for them because they know we are permanently in a state of gratitude for the fact that he delivered us from slavery. And we need to be thankful for that every day. We need to be bound to him every day because of what he has done for us. Why would you not want to obey a God who was so loving towards you? God set them free. Which also proves he loves freedom. And that helps us understand the validity of these commands as well. God's already proven what's best for them. And as we read these commands, I want you to consider thinking back through them about how these commands actually protect and promote freedom. And they promote peace and they promote human rights. If you read the Ten Commandments and you think, boy, these are restrictive. There's no purpose here. All they're doing is tying me up. I don't have the freedom to steal or lie or anything. You don't understand what freedom is. I was blessed with an awesome seventh grade social studies teacher. And we were talking about freedom one day. And I'll never forget this. She said, your freedom ends where someone else's begins. And her, her silly illustration for seventh graders, she started walking through the room like this. She started swinging her arms and she said, this is a free country. I have the freedom to walk like this if I want to. And then she came really close to someone's chair and kind of smacked him in the face a little bit. She didn't hurt him. She said, what, it's a free country. She had the freedom to keep swinging her arms but the student also had the freedom not to get smacked in the face. True freedom protects people. And that's exactly what the Ten Commandments did. Freedom doesn't mean you can do anything you like. You may want to steal from someone else, but they have the freedom and the right not to have their property stolen from them. And Ten Commandments protects that. Think about it this way. God does not want your actions to hurt other people and he does not want their actions hurting you. And if you lie or you dishonor someone, you steal, you murder, you have hurt someone else who has been created in the image of God who has the freedom and the right not to be smacked in the face by you. That's just some of the validity of these commands. They're not useless. They're not vain. They protect you, I'll just say it, from the stupidity and the wickedness of other people. 
because there are other people in this world who would try to rob you of your peace and your freedom, but God already demonstrated that he is pro-peace and pro-freedom by delivering them from slavery. God's freedom-loving character is all over the Ten Commandments. Think about how wonderful society would be if everybody followed these commands, how different life would be. You wouldn't need a lot of things that you have now. You wouldn't need a lock on your door. You wouldn't need passwords for your online accounts. You wouldn't need a gun safe. You, you wouldn't need any of those things because you wouldn't have to worry about anybody taking what's yours. It would be such a different world we can't even imagine. One author says that the Ten Commandments are the recipe for a good world. What a witness Israel would be to the nation surrounding them if they would do these commands. It's the recipe for a good world. But it's a lot more than that, right? We, we know that. Since they came from God, they're authoritative. Since they came from God, they're valid. There are good reasons behind them. So I want you to just consider again that God did not deliver the Israelites from slavery to chain them up with these commands. If they would obey, they would have the greatest and the freest nation ever. And that sounds great. What's the problem? Nobody can do it. Nobody can keep these commands perfectly all the time. And that's going to become especially clear as we continue our study in the coming weeks, especially when we kind of go past the surface level of the command to the spirit, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And we'll do that because Jesus did that in the Sermon on the Mount about several of these. And if keeping these commands, if that's what pleases God, and if that's what he requires, then we're all failures. We need a righteousness that exceeds our law keeping. We're not good. And that's the final point I want to make this morning and close the service by just reminding you of this. These commands did a lot of things, but one purpose that I haven't mentioned yet is that these commands and this law pointed to our need for a savior. Paul wrote to the Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. If we read through this law, one thing it should do is expose our sinfulness because I don't keep it. I can try, I'm not perfect. And we ought to drop to our knees and beg for God's mercy and grace, which he pours out on everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, God's only son, is the only man, who, uh, only man ever who did keep this law perfectly. Jesus lived sinlessly, he loved perfectly, and even though he was completely innocent, he died submissively for you. He took your place. He took what we deserve and put that on his shoulders. 
And if we will repent and trust in him, God will deliver us from our sin just like he delivered the Israelites from Egypt and you will have true freedom as a child of God. If you're here today and you've never personally trusted Jesus as your savior, I cannot encourage you enough to trust him. He loves you. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this study that we're going through about the Ten Commandments. And now that we've approached them, I pray for these sermons coming up. Lord, help us to understand more about who you are and who we are. Help us to understand more about how great Jesus is because we're failures, Lord. We are sinners who are just in need of mercy and forgiveness. And we are so thankful that Jesus died for us so that you could forgive us. Thank you for your love, Lord. If there's someone here today who's lost, I pray for their salvation before it's too late. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.